Hello everybody, I'm Matt Wolford and this is Trium Connects. Marketers don't see a black hole, they see a long-term investment, they see a beautiful shining star at the end of a horizon, whereas the finance guy under pressure says, I need to deliver a PL in a quarter, in half a year, in a year, in three years, and my investors are asking to show me that if I put $1 in, I get 3x out. The best marketers are like truffle pigs. They are sniffing out the unmet or underserved needs and meet that need in a way superior, ideally superior, to competition. Creating willingness to pay is one part. Monetizing that willingness to pay, translating it into actual pricing, is an art in itself. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 13 of Trium Connects. My guest for this episode is Chris Burgrave. Chris had a 23-year classic corporate marketing career at places like Procter & Gamble, the Coca-Cola Company, and finally at AB InBev, where he was the global CMO from 2007 to 2012. In 2013, he founded Vicomte, a marketing advisory and micro ventures firm in New York City. And he's on the board of a number of private and public consumer and tech companies, including VJSC2, which is a SPAC sponsored by Richard Branson's Virgin Group. In this episode, Chris and I discuss his new book entitled Marketing is Not a Black Hole. And emphatically, he says it is not a black hole. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with this analogy, many people see marketing, uh, particularly people from the finance side of the equation, see marketing as kind of a black hole in which money and resources are poured into and nobody knows really where they go or how they influence anything. They just kind of disappear down this black hole. As you can imagine, Chris, having spent his whole life in marketing, does not, uh, definitely does not agree with this analogy. In the conversation here, Chris and I start with a discussion about what marketing is and what it is not. Chris argues that many of us have kind of fallen into a trap where we equate marketing with promotion or advertising, or even at the very worst, we equate marketing with kind of maintaining a online presence. According to Chris, marketing is much, much more. In fact, you'll see that much of the beginning of this discussion is really trying to wrap my head around where the marketing function stops and where everything else begins. And Chris, I think, would argue that perhaps this dichotomy is itself a wrong way of thinking. We then move on to talk about the kind of main theme in the book, and and this theme is a type of dream for Chris. He envisions, he sets up the book by uh, saying, imagine that you're an analyst and you're trying to value a firm. So he very much starts from the finance side of this finance marketing interface. And then he argues, if you are doing your job as an analyst, you have to think about the ability of the firm to be able to consistently raise prices without losing market share, which he defines and others define as this kind of idea of pricing power. And he says that this is absolutely key to the firm's long-term profitability and growth. Now, according to Chris, this is an outcome, this pricing power is an outcome of the level of marketing excellence in the firm. So if you could effectively rank the marketing excellence of the firm, then you could use this 
as an analyst, as a predictive tool of the future profitability of that firm. So what Chris has done in this book is that he created just such a marketing excellence rating, which he calls Alpha M 2.0. And he hopes and dreams that this rating will be used and as useful as other more established ratings that analysts use. You know, you can think of Moody's or Fitch or FICO scores or Altman Z scores or ESG ratings, etc. So when analysts are rating a firm, and if the firm has a business model that's based on branded products or services, and if we can agree that the future value of the firm is based at least on part on its pricing power, and that pricing power is the result of excellence in marketing, if you could have an effective, easy to use, easy to understand measurement or rating of a firm's marketing excellence, then this would be extremely helpful for analysts who are trying to predict the future value of the firm. I sincerely hope that you enjoy the conversation. And as always, if you do like what you're hearing, please go ahead and share the link with your friends, uh, rate us, give us a review. These things really do help, and we'd appreciate your support. And now, without any further ado, here is my conversation with Chris Burgrave. Chris Burgrave, welcome to Triumph Connects. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's a great pleasure to have you here. We first met when you were a Triumph student, is that correct? It's a few moons ago. It's at the beginning of Triumph. At the beginning of Triumph. And I remember that we took a nice uh, jog through uh, a park in Sao Paulo in Brazil when we used to go to Brazil. And we had a, a very long discussion about the pluses and minuses of Coca-Cola. Is that right? Yeah, well, and by now, I hope, I don't know, sure if I was convincing enough to convert you at least to Coke Zero. You tell me. Uh, well, uh, I have a I have a cup of water here in front of me, so I'm, I'm not going to comment on that one way or the other. If it's a Dasani water, I'm happy. <laughs> All right. Well, Chris, look, um, you've written this great and interesting book called Marketing is Not a Black Hole, and I want to get to the details of this book soon. Uh, but I thought maybe just for the listeners, it, it might be interesting to kind of lay the groundwork of what you see as marketing and, and how you see that as a kind of grand topic and where you see the book in that context. So at the beginning of the book, you make a quite, for me, it was a, it was a really clarifying statement that for you, marketing is really all about building sustainable pricing power in your brand. And I wonder if you could unpick that a little bit. Of, uh, what, what do you mean by sustainable pricing power? Good question. So first, let's say the book comes from a, my passion for marketing as a, as a discipline and also from a certain a place of anger, anger and frustration with my own discipline, if you will. By The discipline has allowed itself to become more narrow. Marketing has been reframed over the years as advertising, storytelling. And in the last couple of uh, decades, even down to social media or social media management. So marketing became something much smaller than what its original inventors, uh, Philip Kotler's and the likes in the 60s, when they invented the marketing mix. Marketing was an inherent component of any branded business model. So what I wanted to do in first book and this one in particular as well, is to make people rediscover the fundamentals of marketing and find a simple definition that based on my 30 plus years experience in the business and talking to so many companies, students, workshops, etc., makes sense and is actionable. 
The definition of marketing is a bit like the sex of the angels. If you ask this to 10 different people, you will get 10 different answers. So I'll provide mine. The reason why I said sustainable pricing power is that pricing power is the ultimate outcome of what I want the marketing function to focus on and to generate. What does a marketeer do? Create preference for his or her product or service. You create essentially willingness to pay. Creating willingness to pay is one part. Monetizing that willingness to pay, translating it into actual pricing is an art in itself to make that happen. Capturing the willingness to pay and bringing that money into your top line business model. That's what to me, marketing is all about. And pricing happens to be the thing that the CMO, the CFO, the CEO, the board, and investors all understand, because that is what people see and feel. Okay, so so in a sense, I mean, that sustainable pricing power, which I took it to mean, and I take it to mean that the idea that you can increase price on a particular brand without losing the volume of sales, right? Mm-hmm, that this is, that allows you to increase the price. So that's a kind of metric of if we're going to say whatever marketing it is, it's over here. And if we're doing our job right with whatever that is over here, that gives us sustainable pricing power. That's correct. So it is the ultimate outcome, the tangible outcome that all the stakeholders in the company that run the company can see and feel. It's ultimately what pays the bills. It's the money that transfers from a buyer to the seller. It happens through a price. Uh, It's the marketplace that you help organize. Okay. Pricing is what's tangible. Gotcha. So, because I sometimes get confused about, you know, where the boundaries are on marketing and not, because it, it can encompass so many things, right? So it's, it's many things to many different people, as you said. So um, maybe it helps to define what marketing isn't then. So other than marketing, what else do you think contributes to this sustainable pricing power? So we, if, if we can think of it just as a contrast between what marketing is and isn't, what are some things that aren't marketing, but that still contribute to this uh, sustainable pricing power? Allow me to use the academic construct that was proposed back in the 60s when marketing as a discipline was defined. The grandfather of marketing was called Philip Kotler and everybody that went to university has probably come across his, uh, his book, the notion, the notion, he introduced the notion of the marketing mix. Uh, the marketing mix had four ideas in it. Product, price, promotion, and Place. Place was a word for distribution. So marketing was touching those four concepts in his definition of marketing. And actually, over the last 50 years, that was the breadth of marketing. Product, anybody who touches the product in terms of making it, producing it, the quality of it, the the innovation around it, is in effect contributing to a piece of the marketing mix. Anybody who is uh, contributing to place, which is distribution, selling this and that the commercial component is contributing to the marketing of the product in its broadest sense as intended back in the 60s. Uh, Anybody who deals with promotion, the storytelling around it, what we now call advertising or social media or anything that weaves a story in the mind of the consumer or or your customer, that's the promotion part. Anybody who contributes to that is in fact contributing to marketing. And anybody who's involved in ultimately setting or getting the price is involved in marketing. Marketing was indeed 
a very, very core concept at the heart of strategy, uh, of uh, how you go from A to B, how you build top line in a branded, not in a non-branded, in a branded business model. Okay. That's the intention of the founding fathers of the discipline. That intention over the years has narrowed substantially down to, instead of the four Ps, it became one of the four Ps. Promotion, yes. Promotion. And everybody's talking about the P of promotion and a narrow component of that. That's the marketing today. When people call me and say, Chris, I need a good marketer, then uh, I said, okay, define marketing for me. More often than not today, I said, well, I need somebody who is a community manager for my social media community. And then we start a bigger conversation and say, well, that's not the definition of marketing. And then right. one lead thing leads to another. So um, in a way, if you take a broad definition of marketing, many people in the company touch it. It's an essential discipline that is permeating throughout the organization. So that's where I sometimes just get a little confused. So in the book, sometimes it seems that you use strategy and marketing kind of interchangeably. So let's go to the four Ps you said. So one is promotion, which I think intuitively, that's what you, as you say, that's what people, most people think about when they think about marketing. But one of them is product, right? Right. So uh, the quality of the product, the usefulness of the product, et cetera. The design of the project, the innovation of the project, the features and benefits, the features right? and the benefits of the product. Now, all those things are, are all those things marketing because, for example, then that, you know, the strategy of the project. So, uh, you know, how you focus on customer centricity to try to design products and services that people want, how you then roll out that uh, product. What is, customer what is customer centricity? So, what do marketers do? They, they meet new, unmet, or underserved needs. Ultimately, what is the key skill set of a marketer? How do you create pricing power? Then you drill down. And what I do in the model in the book is to say, let me start, let me be outcome-centric. Let me start from the business model of the company where money is changing hands. And then go back into the machine, all the way down to what starts, what actually is at the root of the exchange to at the root of the exchange is the product or the service, which needs to meet an unmet need or an underserved need. The best marketers are like truffle pigs. They are sniffing out the unmet or underserved needs and meet that need in a way superior, ideally superior to competition. Or if there's no competition, then the, the pioneer, they're the first one to meet that need and they build uh, that need. Sometimes it's a need you didn't even know you wanted, right? This is the whole discussion. Do the consumers know what they want? But everything starts from customer centricity means that you start going into the head of your consumer or your business B2B customer, and you find out what do you want? And how can I give you what you need? And how can I monetize this in a way sustainably over time? In a way if I bring it back to the metric, because that is the metric where everything boils down from in a model, is pricing, the ability to charge more over time, which means, I mean, there's versus inflation, technical metric. metric. So you want to be able to charge more over at or above inflation in your category or segment or country. Yeah. So let's think about sustainable growth. Right. So often strategy is defined, you know, as a category, you know, strategy is about building sustainable growth. And you said that 
marketing is kind of equal to this type of strategy, but for only branded business models, right? So maybe I can wrap my head, help me wrap my head around if we focus on branded versus unbranded, how does that help me understand marketing versus strategy? Strategy, you can have on different levels, and I'm not going to argue with strategy professors like our beloved colleagues, Sonia Marciano and, and others. Uh, they have a, a way to define strategy also in financial terms, but it's a way to get to A to B in a profitable uh, way and extract value for the company. That's right, yeah. Marketing is, in essence, a core component of that, how you get from A to B for a branded business model. Why is that? Because the existential nature of a branded business model is the brand. If the brand loses its ability to extract, to convert, to, to re increase willingness to pay and to monetize will, uh, willingness to pay through its pricing, then it loses its existential reason for being. Because the basis for competition for a branded business model is its brand or brand portfolio. In contrast to that, you have, for example, private label manufacturers or people that compete on costs and cost leadership. If you are a provider of, uh, uh, I give an example of a category where private labels are very uh, important, say frozen pizza, frozen food, yeah. uh, or snacks, or uh, there's many categories where the basis for competition is not brands, but is the cheapest product possible. And people will pick up whatever is the cheapest. As a company to play in this game, it's a cost leadership game. They don't invest in their brand. They invest in their ability to service their clients, retailers, for example, at the lowest possible cost on a sustainable basis and every year even cheaper. So that's two big differences. Yep. Brand-based competition, cost-based competition. So brand-based competition, as, as you explain in the book, focuses on that top-line growth. Absolutely. Because so, the, your basis for competition is inherent in that brand. And if you lose that ability, or ex the point I want to make in the book is, if external investors, or if you take an external view to your company, the best way for a branded manufacturer is, okay, even if they're private as a company, is to ask yourself, what am I worth? Would people invest in my company? Hmm. What is the mental exercise that an analyst, cold and cool and collected analyst, or an investor, a cold and cool investor, says, I am willing to put my money in this company. What is the thought process going on in their head? And decoding that process leads you to strategic pricing power. Yep. Sustainable so, pricing power. So maybe, maybe a way to think about it, and I'm curious to hear your opinion on this. I think about it after talking with you and reading your book, I think of that marketing in branded businesses is about increasing intangible assets. And these intangible yes. asset growth um, is the power that I have to charge more for the good than a non-marketed value would do, right? So uh, I have cola versus Coca-Cola and my job as a marketer is to maximize the delta between what cola can cost and what Coca-Cola can cost. And that brand, that marketing mixture, all of the things that you talked about is all about increasing that sustainable pricing power, which is based on the intangible value of the brand. Is that a good That's summary? Fu fully correct. And I give you an example. 
So the, the book also has a, a nice chapter outlining the evolution from tangible to intangible assets as a core underlying factor of valuation of a company. In the days where it mattered to have machines and land and, and property and cars and fleets and this and that, those were the tangible components that analysts and investor, an outside investor would look at and say, that is what constitutes the value of your company if I were to buy it or sell it. Yep. In today's day and age, the IP, the intangible assets, has eclipsed tangible assets with multiple factors. A good example of that is the software companies that you see. Microsoft's 97% of its value, they, they hardly have plants or property or this and that. The whole IP rests in the software, in the code, and in the brand around it. Why do outside investors value this company? They look at, for example, Microsoft's ability to raise the price of their software packages year after year. And you and me, as willing, uh, we are forking over the money to Microsoft because we, we want and need that package as part of our software solutions. Here's what I think, and this gets us into the, uh, the bulk of a large part of the book. Here's what's interesting to me. So Microsoft's a great example. So am I willing as a consumer to pay an excess amount because of the brand Microsoft and I'm sure there's some, there's some part of whatever I pay for Microsoft that is the brand. And there's also probably some part that it just simply does things better than other products do. Which is the product component of it, which is marketing. It's okay. the code. But you see, at that point, it's in you equate, you equate, you see what happens in your mind here? What effectively is going on is you equate brand with the look and feel with the logo, with a name, with, no, a, with a story? Not necessarily. I equate, because I'm trying to get back to that definition that we said about intangible benefits, right? Okay. In, okay. So I equate it with, as you said, this pricing power. And I see that I'm willing to pay more for Microsoft because I might trust it. I might uh, know that it has a long history of doing something and therefore uh, I'm going to be more confident in buying it. Mm -hmm. It might be that I buy Microsoft for the same reason that people used to buy IBM machines, because I'm never going to get fired if I buy a Microsoft, right? Okay. So those things are real. They contribute to the price, they, and, they, and they are in my mind what Microsoft is. But I also buy Microsoft because of its ability to fulfill other needs as well. So you couldn't... I. All of those things, all those intangible things would be useless if it didn't do what it was supposed to do, right? And some of the premium that I'm willing to pay for it is based on how well it meets that need, right? So let's take Tesla. Tesla has... Yeah, but it's, it's, if you, if you, before we go into Tesla, yeah. Microsoft, and this is an established brand since sure. many years. So yep. we, we've actually seen, we've probably from a generation that's seen Microsoft grow from the very beginning. Yeah. Uh, what you have in your head today is not how Microsoft started. Microsoft had to build up this entire sure. uh, trust in your mind. Yeah. Uh, so they built it up systematically. And essentially, they built up pricing power is a dynamic concept. And this, it's sustainable pricing power means that you are the sustainability component has to do with purpose, with the why of the company, with the North Star of okay, what does marketing. What does Microsoft do as a company on this planet? Bigger question. 
But it, then in the marketing mix, it starts with, does this code work? Does it, to begin with, you know, it's code, it's software. Uh, is that good software? Is it user-friendly? Is it, uh, and then the place component, is it easily available? Can I download it easily? Can I, do I upgrade easily? Can I, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. Over the years, the four, if you think in the 4P construct, the four Ps of which pricing is the ultimately the key one, the four Ps have developed in such a way and embedded and ingrained themselves, uh, ingratiated themselves in your mind to say, I'm going to do it. Also, partly, what they've created is monopoly or semi-monopoly power. Sure. My, you have a choice. You, you can choose not to buy Microsoft. You still do it. But it's, let's say in software, we're talking about an oligopoly. There's the, the more monopolistic you are, here's where marketing comes in as well, you can have pricing power without doing anything because simply you're a monopoly, an electricity company. And if the only one in your area has pricing power without doing anything for the brand. In actual fact, it may be detrimental for the development of the brand, but they're protected by their monopoly. So uh, the, the value of marketing comes most to its uh, fruition in, in competitive context where the choice are broad and you have to work very hard to earn the trust of this consumer or customer. Okay. Let's just take it at the executive level. So let's look at the C-suite. Uh, you have a CMO and a CEO, right? Let's say let's say you have these two uh, roles. What is the CEO responsible for that the CMO wouldn't be, in your mind? CEO is responsible for the the, the let's say plays the full piano and is responsible for the long term wealth creation of the company. Uh, the particular role, I would say, what is the CMO doing that the CEO is supporting is essentially creating preference in that brand he she and the team is there if there is one their unique responsibility and accountability is to ensure is to evangelize throughout the entire company that it's all about building willingness to pay not just their role but the role of everybody to create willingness to pay and help their peers sales in particular the commercial guys and the cfo to uh, translate increased willingness to pay because you've built preference and uh, I'll, I'll get into detail. You build preference and you then translate preference into actual pricing. Because what does the, CF the CFO deals with the spreadsheets and puts in the pricing in the models, etc. The, the sales guy goes out and effectively goes out with an invoice and said it costs you so much and negotiates about margin pools and discounts and etc. But ultimately, as Peter Drucker used to say, the role of marketing is to make selling unnecessary. Yeah. In, in the, if you can do that, there is no discounts, there is no desk, you have sure. pricing power. So the CFO and the chief sales officer, they're all support functions for marketing. No, marketing is the support function for, uh, I would say that everybody is in support of sales. And uh, if, for example, in my own career, okay. the way we would, we would define marketing is, uh, in the, or in the beer company, we would say, in ABMF, we would say there's two kinds of people, um, or three kinds is the people who make the beer, sell the beer, and everybody, help, everybody else helps to make or sell. Okay. So marketing was helping the sales guys sell the beer. And the better we did our job creating 
willingness to pay, yeah. the easier it was for them to sell it. That's a great way. That's a, that's a really insightful. Thank you. So I, I, I think maybe a way to think about it is if marketing is doing its job, then we don't need salespeople, essentially, because it, it will all be pull and not push, right? Every it, People will be lining up to get the product, not because they saw some kind of yeah. promotion. And then you, or still need, you still need a salespeople because you want perfect customer service. You want to be able to extract the maximum price. You want to be able to, et cetera, et cetera, because there okay. is a role to be played there. So but maybe you, not sales. I understand you conceptually. Yeah, maybe, maybe not the salespeople because they have relationship management, et cetera, et cetera, but maybe promotion. Maybe if the rest of the P's are doing their work, then promotion becomes something that is not as important. And then the other thing you say is that the yin and the yang relationship in marketing between this pricing power, which we've been talking about so far, and what you call purpose. Um, so purpose and pricing power, you say you have that has this yin and yang relationship in marketing. Um, it seemed to me that purpose in, in some way feeds into the pricing power, but how do you see it as a kind of equal to pricing power well, or, and I, separate I from? Treat it in mathematical terms. You have the necessary and you have the sufficient condition. The why of marketing, the why of marketing in this day and age, the zeitgeist of today is uh, if you go around marketing seminars, people will talk about purpose of a company at nauseam. And while I'm wholeheartedly endorsing the idea that every company needs to have a North Star and needs to do the right thing and needs to know and needs to be able to clearly and cleanly articulate its reason for being on this planet. That helps because that's your big lane that you're uh, following that's uh, why you are in business. You need to be able to articulate that. To me, that is the necessary but not sufficient condition. It's not because marketers in many marketing meetings will say, we need to be purposeful and that's it. And I go like, no, that is the start of things. That's the necessary but not sufficient condition. Building pricing power is how you connect that to the business model of the company. My argument is that marketing is finance, is business. You need to connect a good basis, a good foundation with the economic, the hard economics of a firm. And the hard economic of a firms are translated in the PL, a cash flow, and a balance sheet. And the essential part that creates revenue is price. So marketers, many of my colleagues, shy away from talking to the finance department or think finance is dirty, best left to some other people prefer to retreat in the promotion zone of storytelling and purpose because that's safe and nice and human and finance is cold and clinical and distant. My point in the book is very clearly, it is both. The necessary condition is purpose, is being purposeful. The sufficient condition to be in business tomorrow is that you have pricing power because you cannot support your purpose over time if you are not creating a healthy company that throws off shareholder and stakeholder value. Okay, so that's a great transition to kind of the next topic. So you start the the book, kind of the first half of the book, is talking about this managerial marketing and finance gap, the MMF gap, you call it. So you just touched on a little bit this idea that they come from two different worlds. You know, you have the marketing people in one world that don't want to talk to the finance people and the finance people that don't understand what the marketers are doing. And, and I think this is where the, the expression, this black hole comes from, right? That it's just someplace that you pour money into and you have no idea how useful it is. Yeah. Now, perhaps 
you could you started doing it, but maybe it would help us. Can you describe two fictitious characters from each side of this gap? So let's use Chris and Matt. Let's say Chris is the marketer and Matt is the finance side. What would be a caricature of us? What what do you see? Because you say a lot of pain comes from this, a lot of missed opportunities and buyers regret, et cetera, et cetera, that these two camps have not been integrated well. And there's lots of different reasons for this. But let's first, you know, to go to those other topics, let's get in our mind what these two kind of things are. So give me a character sketch of somebody uh, from think each of side. It, think of it as, uh, to begin with, as Mars and Venus. Okay. Uh, the finest people... In, and I've, I've asked this question numerous times over the last 10 years and I've lived it. Uh, so the stereotypical answer to this is Mars and Venus, where mostly the finance people will consider themselves being from Mars, the rational, clinical, uh, analytical thinking that uh, focuses on ROI and then keep everything on the straight and narrow. They will look at the Venus people, at the marketeers as dreamers, uh, they do marketing spending, not marketing investment, whereas the, the marketers would say we do marketing investment for the long term and not spending. Um, the, so the caricature starts with the fact that they, they don't understand each other's words, worlds and, and the KPIs that go with it. Uh, the, market, the finance guy will say, well, where's the return? Our, the concept of ROI, where's the return of the marketing spent that you have, because they see it as a spent, mm -hmm. um, and they see packaging. They are directed to packaging or product or something tangible or the service and say, that's what you're spending on or you're spending on advertising. And how do I know that within six months or 10 months or 12 months that I get an increase in sales from that? So listen to the question. How do I get an increase in sales in six months from spending on advertising. Advertising comes in multiple forms. Advertising as a discipline, you can have tactical promotional advertising designed to drive a short-term uh, offering, or you can have long-term brand building advertising that will create that willingness to pay over time. So right there, you have alignment issues in terms of expectation of how fast investment or money poured in the black hole will actually yield something. Marketers don't see a black hole. They see a long-term investment. They see a beautiful shining star at the end of a horizon, whereas the finance guy under pressure says, I need to deliver a PL in a quarter, in half a year, in a year, in three years. And my investors are asking to show me that if I put $1 in, I get 3x out. Now, the tension arises over the fact of how much do you need to put in and how fast do you get out what you put in? And... Uh, do we have any learning and any analytical insight and any data and any that helps me define where I should put that dollar in and any analytical insight and any academic learning around how fast do I get out and how can I align around that? So lots of the issues stem from a lack of alignment of where and where I should put how much in and how fast I get the return from that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because even if I am a finance guy and I don't see it just as a spend, and let's say I see it as an investment, um, I think it would be difficult. I mean, I guess what I would ask if I'm in that situation and I'm trying to make a deci decide on uh, some sort of budgetary cost, right, or investment, I want to know kind of 
am I investing too little or too much? No. And this should is I where... double my investment or yes. should I put it in half? And, and and even if I believe in the, you know, I want the return, I understand, I I get marketing, I, I know that this is where long-term value comes from. How much should I invest in that way? And one of the things I, th- I think that's difficult, and when I read the book, I thought it was interesting. It came up kind of as an aside over and over was this idea. It's a, a measurement problem in some ways, because if you think about it, one thing would be to say, I put in one unit and I get 1.5 out or whatever it is, some sort of uh, clear process. But that's one way to measure it. The other is, if I don't put in one unit, what happens to me? Correct. Right? And that's harder because you never see the what doesn't happen to me. You only see what happens. You never see what wouldn't have happened if I hadn't invested in this. But actually you do, because there's enough evidence and learning of uh, brands that have stopped receiving investment and you see the erosion over time. And so that, there's plenty of stories around it. So the, the, both in real life as in academic settings, people have been able to track and monitor depending on categories. And again, it's, so there is no, the, the short answer is, there is no pure 100% science on this that will say X creates Y and you do this. And here is the, here is the handbook. If you do this, you get that. There is no hard science. It's a mix of art, science, and discipline. It's a mix of madmen, mathmen, and method men and women. Uh, so, and in, when I was a young brand manager at Procter & Gamble, we were among the more data-driven ones, but still, in, I would say in the 80s, uh, late 80s, 90s, we were 20% or we were 80% art, 10% science, 10% uh, method. Today, with the advance in the tools and the measurement tools that are available, I would say the mix, uh, my, my proposed mix would be 20% art, 40% science, 40% method, because there is many more data tools available to track your progress and to have feedback loops between input and output. But ultimately, all of the, what we are now discussing is the how of marketing. The how of marketing is the, is the efficiency of your spend. How much should I spend and how efficient is it and in what? That's the how box. What I want people to realize in the book is say, how do you define marketing excellence holistically? Start with the outcome, not the input and output and the relation. That There's an art, science, and discipline there. But the real outcome that you want to focus on, that track over time, is pricing power. Because that determines the health and value creation of your company. So you may not be the most efficient. You may not be the best. Hmm. But if over time, by and large, you are able to increase the price, then something is going right. Yeah. But there is optimization potential in that efficiency mix always, because there is no fast answer to how exactly you need to do that. Okay. And that's so, what's frustrating for finance people. And that's the art, that's the dark arts of marketing. Okay. So let's run with that a little bit. So let's let's take one step back because you uh, do a, I think a brilliant job in the book of kind of giving a summary of what you call the MFI literature, the marketing finance, is it interaction or? Interface. The marketing interface, finance. sorry, the marketing finance interface. And you, you're very sad. You're very upset. You can see the frustration coming through on the page that it's not come up with kind of a practical tool or an actionable solution for practitioners that they can use. So first of all, this 
marketing finance interface is, is asking just this question. How do you translate marketing actions into some sort of financially measurable outputs? Yeah, so it broadly, it broadly analyzes the impact of marketing on firm performance in yeah. its broadest sense. So you, you seem to argue that the reason that they haven't come up with a kind of a real world a solution is a kind of level of detachment of the academic world. And but I was I wonder about this because presumably in order to show that marketing quality matters for a firm, right? So they can help avoid, so analysts can help avoid buyer's remorse, you know, overspending on something that doesn't have good market, et cetera, et cetera. They must have measured in some way the variability in marketing quality. Because in order to get, you have to have some variability on the independent side to try to explain some variability on the dependent side. So the independent side here is what people are doing on the marketing side. And the dependent is how do you see it impacting firm performance? Now. These models are I mean, massively complex for a reason. I, I just took a small little dip and looked in some of these models because it's super hard to analytically control for all the confounding factors Absolutely. that go into the dependent variables. And experimentally, it's really hard because you can't really have real world experiments at the societal level, you know, at, at a firm level where if the experiment goes bad, it's an existential threat. So one reason you say that they haven't come up with these practical tools is because, you know, academics sitting in their high towers, they aren't really interested in this. But isn't it plausible that it might be that it's just so difficult to come up with a simple, empirically backed, replicable, time insensitive rating tool uh, directly connected to economic values that we can have faith in because of this I fully complexity? Agree. No, okay. first, nobody has done a rating tool so far, an all-encompassing one, nobody did. Uh, they've isolated drivers. So the, in the experiments over the last 30 years of the, the discipline, marketing finance interface is the interaction between marketing and finance as broader disciplines, and is actually a very narrow part. So the first, the first observation is there's only a few, I mean, not few, a couple of hundred academics in the world that are spending time and energy on the interaction between marketing and finance. This discipline is a young discipline, about 30 years, um, and focuses exclusively on the impact of marketing on finance, less, by the way, the opposite, less on finance or marketing. Most professors in this are marketing professors, not finance professors, that are trying to uh, isolate components of marketing and say, does, how much does this correlate with that? Uh, realizing full well the complexity of their uh, correlation work. And I think your overarching conclusion and the one that I came to as well is, is right. And already saw it working for big companies like Coca-Cola and ABMF where we did our own internal work modeling. You cannot control the environment and it's very difficult to create a box, a repeatable model that will uh, be replicable in the future. So that's why I said, this is interesting learning to decompose. I mean, as such, this is interesting, but aren't we approaching it the wrong way by looking at it, the impact from marketing on finance? What if we flip it and go back to the origin of the marketing mix, the pricing component, and look at it with clinical eyes from the outside in as an investor and say, ultimately, how you do it, I don't care. What matters is the outcome. And can I first see what, how you impact the outcome, namely pricing power, and then decompose 
out of the literature and out of experience, what could be the most plausible drivers to increase that without guarantees, but with plausibility. So I went it the other way. Instead of saying, does quality impact firm performance or does advertising impact firm performance? I look at, I don't care if advertising impacts firm performance. I want to see who creates pricing power and what drives pricing power over time. And uh, if we know what the drivers are, can I spend more attention and energy there and increase the probability that pricing power will increase? Because you cannot play God. In the end, as an investor in a company or as a CEO, as a board, you cannot control your future. You cannot control COVID. You cannot control this. What you want to control is the ability for an organization to be excellent in marketing, which is increase its probability to, to over time build that pricing power. That's to me the definition. So I flip it around and I said, follow the money. Uh, instead of marketing finance interface, hmm. I said, I flipped it around in the book and I said, follow the money interface. Start from finance in instead of from marketing out. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if you've read Demodoran's book on the power of narrative in company valuations. Yes, absolutely. It's um, mentioned in the book. And I, I had him as a guest earlier, but I think that this is, I would say this is coming close to what you're saying as well, coming from the finance side. Would you agree that, that essentially yes. he says, in order for us to understand these valuations of the firms, we have to understand what narrative people are using in order to look at the firm. What's their narrative? And then, and then he says, you know, narratives without numbers are fairy tales. Absolutely. So, and so, it depends, or what he says is, it's uh, narrative and numbers it actually depends on, this, on the, your life cycle as a company. If you're yes. starting out, you only can sell the dream. That's it. No the narrative is the up. most important. Yep. The narrative is what matters. Over time, your numbers are backing up your narrative and people will concentrate on the numbers. So I've done my analysis. I've actually, so I sat in the modern's classes like all triumers multiple times, uh, enjoyed those, and it stuck with me. Because ultimately, what is the valuation of a firm is net discount is a net present value calculation of the earnings of the brands over time the ability of the brand to raise prices. So here's where strategic pricing power connects. If you can raise prices on the brand, it means that your future cash flows will increase. And the more you can project as an investor, the, if you see that this company has the ability to raise its prices in the future, and you see that they have a track record of doing that, the more confident you will be in your net present uh, value calculation, because you, you will plot as an analyst increases in price in the future in your model. If yeah. you think the brand is weak, you will actually plot decreases and your net present value will go down. Yeah. This so, is where finance and brand connect. Yeah, so in fact, I, <clears throat> I, I guess that you can look at the whole book as really a call uh, for a proposed tool for better marketing due diligence based value creation or value valuation. I mean, is that fair? That, that what Absolutely. you're trying to do is create a better simple signal um, that's easy to understand, a single, single number. You, you go through lots of different rating systems like Moody's rating system, et cetera, that measure the financial health of a firm. And what you're trying to do is say, what we really need in order to avoid pain and, and mistakes is a kind of rating system that measures the overall quality of the marketing health of the firm. 
Great. Is that is that it? yes the marketing excellence the mar it's a marketing excellence rating tool, and essentially what it does is it in one number not perfect but in a rating, um, it measures the ability you measure the, the the muscle strength the marketing muscle strength of a company to do two things create willingness to pay in the future and monetize it okay. short term and that impacts the cash flow capability of that brand. All right. So I want to get into your Alpha M 2.0, which is which is a rating system that you came up with. But before I get there, let me just put on my uh, kind of, I'm sure that you will see this as a kind of simple uh, or maybe simplistic way of understanding it. Because let's say that we come up with a rating system, right? To measure the marketing excellence of a firm. And we want to make sure that this is going to help us in our investment decisions. And we want to make sure that it's easy and, it, and it, it's a number, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of rating system that, is, that has the ease to use and the usefulness that we need. Now, presumably what we want to do is, is somehow uh, verify this rating tool, right? Mm -hmm. yep. But doesn't that land us back in the same seat that we were before where we went down is we want to verify these models, but we, we get so complicated that we can't tell what's causing what. So how yeah. do we get out of that loop? Well, we, I, am, I got out of it, but the, it, is, it, is, it is man's natural desire to control the future. So the very first academic question that I would have on the model uh, is, and what predictive value does it have? Hmm. To, to, which gets his exact lenses back in this discussion well to validate the predictive value of a tool as a statistician you know that you need a very large database you need to have longitudinal ability to check and by definition it will be full of noise and therefore the results can be questioned in many ways undoubtedly there will be and i already have found phds that are academically interested in this intellectual challenge. They, so we already have some preliminary learning uh, of what the effect might be. And over time, as databases grow, imperfectly as it is, we may get some form of an answer, as we do have in 30 years of marketing finance interface learning. Similarly, with all of its pros and cons. It interests me less. Personally, the big benefit of the book is starts in a much simpler way. It starts in its calibration ability. For example, with, there's a number of companies with whom I'm doing this exercise now. I ask the CMO, the CFO, and the CEO to a simple question. How good is your company in marketing? And how do you know? They have no answer to it. Now they use this simple Alpha M model as a calibration tool. One fills in the questions best way he or she can, and the two others do, and they come with different things. Then we lay the three next to each other, and we say, where are the differences? Why are the differences there? And then you find gaps between their thinking, and you bring them together, and you align them towards what I would call the Alpha M playbook, and, they, and it's tailorable to their needs. All of a sudden, three people that were on three different planets come on one planet and agree on one playbook, and the playbook of strategic pricing binds them together. And they speak the same language, same dashboard, so from multiple planets on one planet, that is the number one value. So the number one value is to have that discussion. 
Yeah, the second question would be, now that's for inside, that's the use case as we call it, the use case inside the company, very clear. The second use case would be, I'm an analyst. If you are consumer centric and you, like I did, I immersed myself in the life of analysts. There's a whole chapter on, or multiple chapters in the book on the life of analysts. Let's understand analysts like people, like we understand our consumers and our customers. What do they do? What is their job about? How can I increase, how can I make analysts' job better by making better recommendation to their investor pools? Whether you're, and you have different analysts, you have the retail analyst, you have the seller side and the buy side analyst, they all have different drivers. This tool can help them make better recommendations and better buying decisions because it is solving a blind side. They don't have easy and useful tools to quickly analyze pricing power of a company. And now with a rating, like, like any other rating that they use and used to, like Moody's and Fitch and Standard & Poor's, they have a whole arsenal of ratings to do a financial health check of a company. There is an unmet need and an underserved need in the investment community to provide a marketing quick signal that tells them how good a company is in marketing, which influences an analyst forecast of buy, sell, or whatever rating it is, or an investor decision to invest yes or no. Uh, so what I'm doing is simply creating a tool, a simple tool co-designed with them, by them, out of their life that they might want to use because yep. it fits their needs and say, okay, this will help reduce buyer's remorse. It will give you no guarantees because I can't, but it will increase the plausibility of making a good decision. Okay. So I get that and I can see the unmet need there. So, so here's a question. So let's say that somebody comes along and says, uh, look what Chris has been up to. Chris Burgrave, he, he has this uh, Alpha M 2.0 we can really see that it's it's a value. We're going to create our own. So we we have another rating system. Could be. Now let's let's just say yeah. I'm an analyst and I'm trying to figure out which of these two rating systems I should use. Now you said it's human nature to want to be predictive, right? But I'm going to want to know if I'm going to choose between these two to use. Let's say they give very different ratings. Okay. How do I know which one is better? Let me, I'll, let me first give you the story. Are you familiar with ESG ratings? Yes. How many ESG ratings are there in the world? Loads of ESG ratings. And which right. one would you use and why? Well, me personally, I think ESG as a category is a category error. I don't know why these three things are put together into one category. It seems to me to be madness. So I have no idea which one I would use because I, I would want to say it depends on what you're trying to measure. Has any of the multiple ESG ratings been proven predictive in terms of uh, impact on investment decision so far? Well, again, here, the methodologist in me would say that's really hard because if by definition you're using them to drive your investment decisions, it isn't the ESG actions of the firms that are causing it, it's the ESG rating that's right. causing it. So I don't know how you disentangle those two things. And still, as yet, many people use it. Tons of companies and triumvirs that are in boards now, et cetera, are confronted with the question, which ESG rating shall I choose? And I need one to lower my bank and to be part of the... So what's happening is human nature, to look for shortcuts to help decision-making. Hmm. And not necessarily does it always have to be already proven predictive. It needs to be helpful to make the decision and plausible. 
And if over time, indeed, if it were as easy as to be able to say, this will give you with 99% confidence an absolute outcome, well, if you believe the efficient marketing theory, market theory, then already everybody would be doing it. It would be superfluous. Yeah, yeah. In other words, this is a competitive tool, a competitive understanding tool that will help you increase, um, reduce risk or the perception of risk and the perception of making better decisions. Who says over 100 years, what learning do we have over credit ratings in terms of effectively predicting people's bankruptcy or default? Mm. Mm. There's big questions around this as well. To what extent do the Moody's and other ratings really predict? Yet they have become a hardwired part of the toolbox. Uh, you instinctively may or may not, if you're a restaurant lover, follow Michelin uh, stars. Michelin stars is a code. Are you asking the predictability of Michelin, uh, of, of a restaurant being in business in 20 years? No. It's a shortcut to help you make a decision between restaurants. That's a great analogy. Let me let me pick that up because I, I do I, I get that and I see where you're headed here. This is what this what surprised me a little bit at the end. So I, I'll tell you the truth. I was going through the book and I was getting towards the end, and I was waiting to get to the table that would show me a hundred companies and give me their scores. Mm-hmm. So I pick up a Michelin rating book and I go, oh, this restaurant has two stars. That t- I know that they know their food, they know their restaurants, they know whatever it might be. That helps me in my decision of where I want to go. Or if it's one star or three stars, et cetera, et cetera. I get that. If I am uh, trying to uh, look at the financial health of a company, I might use, uh, you know, uh, Altman Z score, or I might use Moody's Investment. I get all that. What I was surprised at at your book, and I, I, I'm I because I lo- you you have these eight fundamentals, and you go through a really exhaustive. I, I think it's a great list of really insightful questions that you should ask for each company along these eight different dimensions of marketing excellence. And I understand that all, but it seems to me the value isn't you give me a book and say here's how Michelin rates a restaurant. Now you go and do it. Because that that destroys for me anyway the the now maybe that's the intercompany thing that you were looking at and engendering the discussion and that discussion itself has value, but if I'm an analyst, I don't want you to give me the the recipe. I want you to do it for me because you're you're going to be better at, at rating the marketing excellence than I am, and in the same way that a restaurant somebody who's a professional food critic of restaurants is probably going to be able to be much more discerning than I am, if, even if they give me what they're looking for. It's a very fair question. The, the, so first, I would say stay tuned. Those lists will happen. And uh, historically speaking, if I were to make the analogy, Michelin is 100 years old. Uh, credit ratings are 100 years old. Uh, the Z, the Z, Z rating is back uh, is, is has its decades. don't say 100 years old for it uh, no for it so we <laughs> want to be respectful um so many of these hardwired ratings and well-established ones actually have a long history and they are brands in itself they started somewhere the notion and the concept of a marketing excellence rating is a novelty uh in its so i am in the beginning of this phase and what this book does is establish the, an, an advanced proof of concept, comes with use cases. Yes, so in, in companies, I already use this and companies are using it. And then analysts, analysts and investors, if they could buy the service and would, they, I ask those questions, who would be the authority to help make it and systematically potentially sell those ratings 
any of the credit rating companies might be interested in doing so. There are other type of agencies that might be interested in doing so. So over time, I dream of a future in which this will become a, a potentially commercial thing or something you can pull off Bloomberg, like Z-Scores you can do for Zalba. Yeah. Uh, I dream that is happening. But I've, you need to start somewhere, which is seeding in the marketing finance community, in the larger academic community, then build up the notion systematically that is actually is plausible and useful. And as the next step, Matt, there is one school with the pioneer in marketing finance in the world is the Maastricht University in the Netherlands. Uh, they've already committed, uh, we've actually started, so we have uh, already PhD and, and master students now working on exactly creating some of those lists that you referred to, uh, to start to create the provocation and say, look, here is a list of the so-called top marketeers of country X. Now we're going to unleash Alpha M on it. And on the basis of the data that we can see as clinical outsiders, as if you were investors, here is how we would rewrite that list if you were to uh, do Alpha M. That I, provocation is on its way. And I think that's fair enough. But I, I just, at the very beginning of your book, you say, you know, you, you're waiting for me to say, you know, how good is this marketer versus this marketer? And I, I, I wanted to say, yes, that's, that's what I'm waiting for. And I wouldn't sell yourself short. So I, I think that that's really interesting. And I guess a suggestion might be, because you have great contacts in the MFI community, uh, this marketing finance uh, interface community, it would be really interesting. There'd be nothing to stop you from doing this historically, looking at a company at a particular time. Uh, let's say you, you use your method on somebody in the 70s and see how they performed over the next 10 years to give it some additional. No, I, the perfect example for that is, uh, as I highlight in the book, I myself am an exponent of, uh, of Procter & Gamble. I, my, my formative years as a brand manager were in, in P&G, which is as a consumer packaged goods company together with Unilever and others, one of the schools of marketing and always was and still to a degree is. Um, so the question would be, for example, if you were to apply Alpha M thinking on a company uh, that is perceived and has this notion of being a school of marketing. Well, if you were to apply this thinking, clinical thinking as an outsider investor, the PNG of the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, and over 50 years, how would Alpha M look at that? Uh, yeah, is there anything you can learn from it? Uh, so those are, those are fantastic thesis questions. Those are fantastic research questions and academic research questions that hopefully the book will inspire. And there's many more. We have actually, we have a running list of ideas that coming out of discussions that we may investigate further. Well, uh, so what I what I hope is to, if anybody listens that is interested in uh, helping marketing and finance worlds connect better, I can only wish for and be thankful a that they read it and b that they feel inspired to close another small step of this journey. Because if one thing I've learned from reading all these marketing finance uh, research papers and others is that indeed knowledge is something you build up systematically. It's not a one-man show. It is yeah. a community. It's a, it takes a village, as they say. Yeah, it's a creative in nature, absolutely. And and I think that it's a great testament to your work that it it spins off so many of these uh, research ideas. And hopefully, uh, if all goes well, uh, we'll be looking at those uh, ratings of different companies. They will have a variability of them through time, and we can match them back to their variability with some time delay on what happens to their their pricing power as it relates to their uh, their score.
So one, uh, one day, Matt, we may have a capstone team in 2040 looking at a longitudinal analysis of Alpha M. Uh, maybe, maybe indeed we will. Maybe we, <laughs> we will. Or, or a capstone team coming up with another rating that is, more, rating. That is more effective. So who knows? Like you said, it's accretive and it's step by step. And, and it's a great testament to you that, that so many interesting ideas spin off from what you're, what you're doing here. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Look, before we get out of here, I'm going to take uh, advantage of my position as a uh, as the kind of leader of this conversation to just ask you a question that is interesting to me about marketing and has to do with marketing in our future in the age of big data and tracing of our consumer wants and needs and desires. Uh, what I'd like to do is is sketch out three fears I have. Um, and I want you to say which of these, if any, I should be worried about uh, and if I should be worried at all. So one fear is that with lots of data on us as humans, that we become reliant on algorithms to know us better than our own subjective understanding of ourselves. So we go to uh, buy something, we go to meet someone, we go to choose a EMBA course, and instead of looking at what we want, we would look to, to say, uh, algorithm, what do you think I'm going to be most uh, happy with? And in fact, the algorithm will do a better job of predicting what I'm going to be happy with. I, I'm less good at deciding what services and products will meet my need than the marketers are. And what kind of world does that become? So that's one of my fears. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that marketing using knowledge from all this data knows me so well that it can create a kind of never ending hedonistic loop of created desires and needs and turns me into a kind of pure consumption machine. So it learns my preferences so well that not only does it know my preferences better than me, it can, as you said, it's not only the marketer's idea to meet existing needs, it's to create new desires and needs that people didn't even know they had. But if some sort of algorithm can know me better than myself, then they could create then this never ending hedonistic loop of, as I said, loop of created desires and needs that I need to continually go down. And I just become a money pump for the marketers. The third fear, you can look into my paranoid mind now, um, the number of firms with access to this kind of data and AI and understanding will be limited to just a very few. And by leveraging the two points that I made above, these two fears above, they'll create vast power to direct not only my little insignificant human life, but human life in general. So we will, we will be ceding masses amounts of power once the algorithm can know me better than me to the companies that create these algorithms and that by definition, they will be a small number of companies. So these are the kind of future worries of marketing. Should I be worried about any of these? And if so, can, tell, tell, me, tell me not to be worried. No, well, I, I'm, but I'm afraid you should actually have written on this a few years ago. It's a, there's an article on LinkedIn and a few more. It boils down to me to this, the three fears all combined to one. What is what makes life interesting as a human being? What do we make decisions on? And ultimately, 
regardless of all the stimuli I give you as a marketeer and others, or forget even marketing, in your choices, your choices are based on what? Ultimately, whether you agree with it or not, on emotion. If emotion is ultimately 95% of the, 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 the psychology of what ultimately makes people choose this or that, if you're gonna, if you yourself, so at the moment we're in the situation where algorithmic thinking is making, is you're outsourcing from your brain, your decision-making for a number of decisions to algorithms that decide for you, whether it's in the form of a very easy price app or booking.com. I mean, you something simple to tell you your, your prefrontal cortex, do this or do that. Uh, but in the end, behind that prefrontal cortex, as all psychologists will show you and every marketing research will show you, there's emotion uh, choosing you one way or the other, whether you consciously want to admit it or not. That's the current situation and more and more algorithmic thinking, we are outsourcing more to it. The next step, the one that I'm personally afraid of, and you seem to be afraid of, is that when you yourself become the algorithm, if you become, so in other words, cyber, uh, cybermat, cybermat is an algorithm by himself. And the question is, what kind of algorithmic thing, do you still have emotion at all? And or, does human life as it is, this is a very existential question, does human life as is become emotionless and we have the end of the human and the start of the, cyber the cyborgs and is there sentient life? Can cyborgs love or not? Well, you look yeah. at Blade, Blade Runner in all those movies, yeah. in all those futuristic <laughs> movies, you can see, yes, they have a heart and yes, they can love and they can fear. If you cannot love and fear anymore as an algorithm, as a cyborg, then your, your marketing choice-based preference based on emotion is gone. Yeah, I guess for me, it's not the cyborg. For me, it's I am what drives those emotions, what surfaces them above my consciousness level, what creates them. If someone understands exactly how to play that tune, except that, that play that instrument, exactly how to create and to but, but dissipate that assumes, those emotions. That assumes, which may be true in an unequal algorithmic world, that one's algorithm is more powerful than another's algorithm. In other words, that you as a that some inequality in brain power that we have. Oh, today, but but we already know. So this is the thing, Chris. In many, yeah. many ways, we already know that there are algorithms that will do a better job of predicting how I'm going to feel about something in the future than I'm going to predict how I'm going to feel about it in the future. So then, if you become that, it's in your brain. Your brain is essentially part transplanted or part evolved into you being the cyborg. Then the existential question we need to ask ourselves yeah. is, do we want a world in which that is completely void of emotion? That's a world, uh, the title of the article I said, is it really the end of marketing as we know it, which has been used a few times on books in the last decades. This time, algorithmic thinking like this and becoming soundboard may really be the end of marketing as we know it, because emotion as the basis for choice is gone. Yeah. My fear isn't that marketing is at its death. My fear is that marketing is at, is at its birth of a new way and a, a new kind of form of marketing that will be, that we will be helpless to kind of but you won't override. Know. But you won't know. You'll be happy. Well, maybe, you may be very happy in that Maybe so. Brave new world, right? We're back to uh, Huxley. Okay. 
So look, I'm going to get you out of here. You've been super generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, with all my guests uh, uh, on the podcast, we we always ask uh, just one book, film, play, TV show, podcast, fiction, nonfiction, that's helped you get through the crisis. What would you recommend to the listeners? Oh, that gets us, gets us through COVID. Um, there is a Canadian commander of a astronaut called Chris Hatfield, and uh, he had uh, he wrote a fantastic book, An Astronaut's uh, Guide to Life. So essentially, he's been one of the people that's been in space the longest, has a very distinguished astronaut career. And I thought he wrote a phenomenal book yeah, of, of bringing space, translating space in human way and how, what it means for, for all of us. And so while we are confined in our own spot uh, and had to rethink and reassess, this book helped me to think differently. And again, you think about existential questions and life on earth and beyond uh, pandemic makes you think and reflect deeply and more and more more than ever i am convinced there is a not only there is life outside earth and there is a for mankind it is it is important for us that we understand and so over the next years and decades and centuries that we discover how we can become a spacefaring nation for uh, our own survival sake uh, all so right. I, that's a book that I would recommend warmly to everybody, An Astronaut's Guide to Life by Chris Hatfield. All right. Well, Chris Burgrave, thank you very much for joining us. You've been listening to Trium Connects, a podcast for the Trium community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Trium Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best. <laughs>